Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Frederico Reo. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud, our podcast series trying to bring European history, culture, and civilization to bear on current political debates. For today's episode, we have chosen to reflect on a phenomenon that existed throughout recorded history, but gained renewed relevance in recent weeks. It is the phenomenon of iconoclasm, meaning the destruction of icons and other images or monuments for religious or political reasons. As many listeners might, might remember, the term and the, uh, the thing itself is normally traced back to the 8th century Byzantine Empire, particularly Emperor Leo III, who publicly uh, took a stance against the use of religious images, religious icons in uh, churches, and triggered a wave of uh, removal and disruption of such images. But as I have, as the definition tried to capture the term is now used more widely to mean the destruction of icons and other images or monuments for religious or political reasons. Now, the, the reason why we thought it was interesting to discuss this topic is that uh, there is now, in a way, an iconoclastic wave of demonstrations and destructions, cultural destructions going, going on in uh, uh, the United States and in Europe, particularly against statues and monuments. This was triggered, as many will remember, by the death of African-American uh, George Floyd at the hand of a white policeman in the United States. And it started as uh, widespread anger at police brutality and racial injustice uh, in the United States, but it spread, as I said, to many European cities. Now, violent protests have resulted in the, the vandalization or the toppling of a number of monuments and statues, for example, those of uh, Christopher Columbus, the discoverer of the Americas, who is however accused of being responsible for the exploitation and extermination of native peoples in the Americas, and in the United States also uh, so-called confederate statues, meaning statues representing figures from the southern states who fought and lost uh, to maintain slavery in the American Civil War, but they still have a number of mo uh, monuments throughout the country because they represent, reg regardless, beyond slavery, important figures of the history of the southern states. Closer to us, so in Europe, uh, targeted figures of these campaigns, of these uh, acts of iconoclasm, included people like Cecil Rhodes, the founder of Britain's African Empire in the late uh, 19, early 20th century, who was also um, celebrated in a famous statue um, on the facade of Oriel College in Oxford, who has been um, a source of constant demonstrations uh, for the statue to be removed in recent years, but also Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister during the uh, Second uh, World War, who is widely considered the savior of Britain and Europe from the Nazis during World War II, uh, but is now also accused of being a racist. In, in Belgium and in Brussels, there was a whole campaign against uh, uh, King Leopold II of Belgium, who was widely known as the rebuilder of Brussels, who gave the city the, the, the shape that it currently has, but who also was the conqueror and of Congo, of the Congo in Africa, and bloodily squeezed the country as his own 
personal property. So I could continue list, sort of listing the people who have been targeted uh, by this campaign. Uh, I will stop here. I will maybe only add that this anti-racist campaign determined uh, original or peculiar initiatives, such as, just to mention one, the decision of the well-known beauty brand L'Oréal to remove words like whitening from skincare products as offensive and racist towards non-white people. So this is the background of the, of the podcast, and the idea is to contribute to the ongoing debate about the legitimacy of erasing the past through iconoclastic acts with two simple ideas. First idea, some acts of iconoclasm, of cultural destruction, let's say, are an inevitable part of the way we construct our historical memory and political legitimacy. So there are some acts of iconoclasm that are a normal part of human history. So we have at least to understand them, if not to condone them. However, these acts concern a very limited um, number of cases and extreme cases. And I will define in what sense extreme uh, later on. And the second idea is that the current iconoclastic trends do not, in my opinion, belong to such uh, cases. Uh, they are misguided, and we should not encourage them. So I come to my first issue. What acts of iconoclasm, if any, can we accept, can we condone, can we understand? And I think the easiest way to convey this is to start with some historical examples. Examples are always an easy way to get ideas across, like three or four of them. First example, in 1776, following a public reading of the freshly written Declaration of Independence of the United States of America, a group of New Yorkers descended on Bowling Green in Lower Manhattan. Those who know New York will, will see where the place is. And they pulled down a statue of King George III, the English monarch that they were um, separating from, and beheaded it. They beheaded the statue. Second, very similar example. We are in 1918 in central Moscow. The revolution is ongoing, and celebrators beheaded and destroyed a gigantic statue of Tsar Alexander III following the abdication of his son Nicholas II, which had just happened. Third example, again, very similar, though we are not dealing with kings anymore, but with dictators. We are in 1956 in Budapest, during the Hungarian uprising against the communist regime. And we have a, a, a crowd of enraged anti-Soviet uh, demonstrators tearing down the Stalin monument, this time dedicated, of course, to the famous um, Soviet leader. Final example, and then I try to draw some conclusion from these examples, 2003, so very recently, less than 20 years ago, in Iraq, the victorious United States Marines are entering, enter Baghdad, and they topple the monumental statue of dictator Saddam Hussein in Fiordo Square, in the very central square of Baghdad, marking the symbolic end of the Battle of Baghdad. So why, what, what am I trying to get across with these examples? What do they all have in common? They are revolutionary acts of political iconoclasm, aimed at marking a violent break with the past regime, which is being overthrown, and at establishing the legitimacy of a new political re regime, which has been established. So 
breaking the legitimacy of an old regime, establishing the political legitimacy of a new uh, regime. So in this sense, I think these acts of iconoclasm are part of an understandable ritual often performed by, by, often performed by human communities in political transition. And in this sense, if not condoning them, we can at least understand them. I say we can at least understand because they are in no way inevitable. Statues can be removed and stored in museums, for example. They don't have to be destroyed. Monuments also can be appropriated by the new regime. They don't necessarily have to be destroyed. Let me give you some examples of successful and at times spectacular appropriation of old monuments by new regime. The first example that comes to mind and perhaps the most spectacular is Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Hagia Sophia acted for a long time as the Greek Orthodox Patriarchal Cathedral, so the most important church of Orthodox um, Christendom. And it was considered rightly the epitome of Byzantine architecture. Except that in the 15th century, in the mid 15th century, Constantinople falls to the conquering Ottomans. And the Ottomans do not destroy the church, but they transform the church into an Ottoman imperial mosque, one of the most important Ottoman imperial mosques. More recently, the church, after the, uh, the, the overthrow and the fall of the Ottoman Empire, is then transformed into a museum. So a very successful example of cultural appropriation. Another equally successful example of um, appropriation as, as opposed to destruction is the Farnesina Palace in Rome. The Farnesina Palace in Rome, for those who have visited the city, this, this huge monumental building, white building of travertino marble, was, uh, fin was constructed under Mussolini, the Italian dictator, as an architectural embodiment of fascist ideals to host the headquarters of the National Fascist Party itself. So it couldn't get more fascist than that. And now, after 80 years, let's say, the very name Farnesina in Italian is associated, is synonym, with Italy's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which the palace has hosted since 1959. So another great example of cultural appropriation. So to come to, to conclude on, on, on this first idea, uh, I think these acts of, icon of political iconoclasm aiming at breaking the legitimacy of an old regime and at establishing the legitimacy of a new regime in revolutionary times, if not condoned, can at least be understood. I think we can make much less sense, and I come now to my second key idea, of what is going on these days. And that is the idea that current iconoclastic trends are the expression of a misguided and potentially intolerant mindset, and that we should not encourage it. Let me just focus on three notions, three ideas. First, what is being asked of us is practically impossible. What demonstrators in the street are asking us to do is practically impossible. Second, what they are asking us to do is historically misguided. Third, what they are asking us to do can be politically dangerous. It is practically impossible for a very simple reason that looked at from the vantage point of progressives values, almost every statue, every monument, every site, 
every figure from our past is objectionable and offensive to someone's sensitivity. One could start, could pick any uh, examples from European history uh, at will. What should we do, for example, with the Colosseum? The Colosseum is a place forever associated with memories of games, sure, but also of slavery and of human slaughter. What should we do if we push the reasoning a little bit farther, even with the Greek agoras that we have traditionally associated with the roots of our democracies, but if we look carefully at it, they were the expression of societies that disenfranchised women and also rested on a strong foundation of slave labor, Athens itself. So the epitome of ancient democracy was uh, such a reality. So in other words, if we push the logic of these street demonstrations against uh, Columbus, against uh, uh, Churchill, etc., to the bitter end, what is being demanded is that we completely erase, either physically or symbolically, the entirety of Western history. And this is highly problematic also from the point of view of the psychological consequences that it can have on the cohesion and the resilience of our societies. I think it is probably one of the reasons the rise of this historical narrative, or this very negative historical narrative, that, that accounts for the success of right-wing populist parties in the last uh, decade. Because right-wing populist parties, in their own uh, flawed, wrong way, they still offer a counter-narrative uh, that revendicate the bright sides of the European past that are denied uh, by these trends. And I come to my... Uh, farther observation, meaning that this whole demand is misguided. It is misguided, if you want, from the point of view of, shall we say, historical understanding and, and honest understanding of the European past, because to primarily see Columbus and even Leopold, not to talk about Churchill and others, as just racist mass martyrs, is just a highly questionable operation to reduce the entire history of Europe and the West to a tale of slavery, inequality, and oppression, race oppression, gender oppression, and so on, is a grave distortion of the historical record. It just doesn't hold. To say it with the words of famed Anglo-American historian Neil Ferguson, formerly at Oxford and Harvard, now at the Hoover Institution, and I, I almost quote him verbatim, he was commenting the occurrences, the events of the last few days, so these trends, these iconoclastic trends that I'm talking about. And he said, history is not monochrome. It can be told as either a eulogy or a criminal indictment. Good history acknowledges that there are debits as well as credits pretty much everywhere. So there are debits as well as credits in Columbus. There are debits as well as credits in Cecil Rhodes. And there are debits as well as credits in uh, Leopold II. If we follow the sort of historical logic, the historical narrative that is motivating this action and that is also being strengthened by this action, we reach, frankly, bizarre extreme. Uh, for example, a new project of the New York Times, starting, I believe, in 2019, called the 1619 Project, whose aim is to recast the entire history of the United States with slavery as the dominant narrative. 
Now, frankly, from a historical point of view, that is highly questionable. Sure, slavery was part, an important part, probably of American history, and maybe we didn't pay enough attention to it. But I would say that uh, things like the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the invention of federalism would probably be more central than the acceptance of slavery for part of the American past. So it is practically impossible, it is historically misguided, and it can be politically dangerous. Now, there is a reason, probably a justified reason, why civilized people should not vandalize, destroy, or even remove their historical heritage. There is a reason why they should cherish it, and they should question it. At times, they should bitterly question it, but they should not remove or destroy it. And the reason, in my opinion, is the following. The civilized people should be aware that human history, like human life itself, is the realm of relatives, not the realm of absolutes. It is the product of what Kant in the 18th century and more recently Isaiah Berlin, the great liberal philosopher in the, in the 20th century, called the crooked wood of mankind, meaning that in our history, as in our nature, good and evil, virtue and vice are closely and intimately intermeshed. They can never be separated once and for all. And this is precisely what I think those who are holding Columbus or Leopold accountable to an almost superhuman ideal of absolute justice, equality, and freedom do not understand. They are denying the fundamental imperfection of everything human. And this is, this is dangerous because I think behind these uh, movements from a political point of view, there can be, if they are left to develop unchecked, the, the psychological driver of this behavior is ultimately the urge to accomplish paradise on earth, to bring about a utopia of absolute equality, freedom, and justice, which has been recognized, for example, in the 20th century by important uh, scholars like Eric Fögelin as one of the drivers of the totalitarian mindset. This idea, to, this, this drive to bring about paradise on earth based on an absolute standard of um, equality, freedom, and justice. So I come to my conclusion. My conclusion is simply that true humanism, true love of mankind, whether we are talking about the Christian humanism of Erasmus of Rotterdam or the more secular humanism of, say, Kant, in my opinion, is incompatible with most instances of iconoclasm, most instances of cultural destruction. A partial exception, as I have tried to explain, can probably be made for those instances of violent sort of political upheavals that coincide with regime change. And this is particularly so when they limit themselves to removing the symbols of power and legitimacy of the overthrown regime in order to establish the legitimacy of the new regime. But when they become, as they have become at times in the past, witch hunting aimed at totally erasing all traces of an unwanted past, it is probably the sign that a dangerous mindset is taking hold and that we should watch out. I don't think this is our situation, our current situation. Some of what is happening is perfectly healthy. Each generation has to partially rewrite the history of its past based on changing needs and values. This is a perfectly normal uh, movement. And I think that behind the, the movement against statues and monuments, uh, 
this is part of what is happening. Some healthy demands for reconsidering our past from new perspectives. For example, from the perspective of a higher concern for racial equality, which is sacrosanct and important. It becomes unhealthy if it moves from encouraging critical engagement with the past to silencing, crushing, or destroying the past. If we don't like old statues, we can create new ones representing the heroes of our own time. But let us not indulge into acts of vandalism against our forefathers, or whatever wrong they might have been on, on some of their beliefs or actions. And really, to conclude now, in my opinion, some of the best words of wisdom by a political leader on this issue came from French President Emmanuel Macron. Macron promised to fight for everyone to find their place regardless of ethnic origin or religion and to be uncompromising in the face of racism, anti-Semitism, and discrimination. But he also continued with very clear words, and I quote here, this evening he said, I say to you very clearly, my dear fellow citizens, that the Republic will not erase any traces or any figures from its history. It will not topple any statue. Thank you very much for your attention. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.